Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. And welcome back for what is going to be our last talk of the day. Uh, but now we've got our friends and wonderful sponsors from Exola who are going to put together and go through a panel on how to supercharge your pitch to investors and publishers. And so I will get out of your way, Lawrence, and let you take it from here. Thank you so much, Jay. We are really excited to be um, sponsoring Indie Game Business Sessions for the first time. Welcome everyone. So thank you for joining us at our fireside chat. I know it is the last uh, session of the day, so we're really glad you're here. Um, so today we're gonna talk about how to supercharge your pitch to investors and publishers. And this session is hosted by Exola Funding. I'm Lawrence Mean, I'm the Director of Partner Experience with Exola, and we have some really great topics to cover for you today to really help you hit the home run with your funding search. But first off, I'd like to thank my friends for joining me and begin with a round of introductions. Um, let's start with Joni Kraut, the CEO of Women in Games International. Sure, thank you so much for having me. So I'm Joni, I'm the CEO at Wiki. Um, we are a nonprofit focused on getting more diversity in the games industry. Uh, we have over 90 programs, workshops, panels, and initiatives in 2022. And we are focused on everything from mentorship to access to technology, um, to finding ways to just um, knock down barriers and, and get more people in the door. So I'm excited to be here. Awesome, thank you, Joni. Let's hand it over to Tiffany Otto the Director of Partnerships at IndieCade. Hi everyone, I'm Tiffany Otto. I'm the Director of Partnerships at IndieCade. Uh, we're the Sundance Video Games, if you haven't heard of us. Uh, we basically find games before they're funded, showcase them, all that. We have festivals in LA, New York, Paris, and obviously E3. So where, what that means for us this year is I talk with a lot of developers and about how they can kind of start themselves into this pipeline, which is why I'm here. Also, indicates in October, you can sign up now. <laughs> yeah, it's a great event. Um, can't wait to see it. So let's, last but not least, uh, Nathan Solbrandt, my colleague, who is our business development of funding in Europe, who is, uh, he's based out of Berlin. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. Yeah, so uh, my role is basically for Exola funding is to work with developers, uh, get them ready to apply to our funding club, you know, work through their pitch decks, um, help them out as much as possible to give them uh, the greatest chance of, of getting funding. So looking forward to this. Okay, awesome. Thank you guys for coming. So I know that we are eager to dive into these topics, but first I am obligated 
to my overlords to take a quick commercial break and give you an introduction to Exola Funding's programs for developers. Um, you can think of it as your little pre-roll ad, you know, to this uh, fireside chat. And with that, I'll let Nathan take it away here. Yeah, um, it's pretty straightforward. Exola Funding is broadly aimed at getting uh, getting games to market, and we have a bunch of different products that we we um, go through to basically help games get to market. Funding Club is the core product. We'll dive into that a little bit in a second. The Exola Game Investment Platform is a newer product we've launched, and we've also got an accelerator program now as well. So if you flip over, yeah, the Funding Club is basically a matchmaking service, um, no cost. Basically, what we do there is we connect developers with publishers and investors. Exola doesn't take a cut out of this. It is really just an opportunity for us to help uh, give games around the world an opportunity to connect with uh, investors and publishers um, through a platform that really facilitates that. Um, if you can go to the game investment platform, Lawrence. So this is what I'm really focused on at the moment, actually. Um, and this is a co-investment platform. You can think of it a little bit like a Kickstarter, but behind closed doors. Um, and what that means is we have individuals that contribute from five to $50,000 to a game. Once the co-investment fills up, um, then we, we release that funding to the developers and they're able to kind of move forward with that development and um, take their game to the market. And the Accelerator program, you know, this is, I think everyone's pretty familiar with how Accelerator programs work, uh, but basically what we do here is train, train developers, be a lot more hands-on with them, use up some of our expertise and some of the people that we've got um, from being in the industry for 17 years that are good connections with us to really help um, nurture developers through that early process of uh, putting a game together. Yeah, and this one's really exciting, right? It's a 16-week program. They get $100,000 in bridge funding up to $100,000, and it's uh, one of our newest programs that we're yeah, really excited yeah, to be we've got our, finally. We've got our first batch that's um, been accepted. I think we're open to the second batch, which is opening up, uh, will be available later in the year. Uh, but I know the first games have been funded now and they're kind of, their pipelines have started. So um, obviously it'll take a little bit of time before they hit the market, but yeah, it's been um, a new product for us, but yeah, very, very exciting that one. Applying is very straightforward. Um, you go to the link, uh, but you can also go to excel.com forward slash funding. Um, we typically recommend that you have um, some sort of build. Um, it can be a very early build. It doesn't have to be a full vertical slice. Um, a pitch deck um, is very important. And you know what we're really interested in is just seeing alignment between the pitch deck and the build. If the game mechanics and the core gameplay are really far off from what you're telling us in the build, um, that's when we start to have a few issues. Um, but even at a very early stage, if we can feel those game mechanics, um, you know, give us the, the confidence that you can deliver on the vision you're, you're putting together in the pitch, then um, that's really what we're most looking for. You know, I should also stress every single game that comes into our, into our system gets play-tested by a professional play-testing group who are part of Exola. Um, so we do take you know, pretty seriously how we select the games, and it's not just a case of... Um, looking at a pitch deck and then making a decision. The, the core gameplay is what's um, most important to us. Okay, well, thank you for that, Nathan. Now we are ready to launch into our topics. So our first topic is um, regarding common mistakes that developers make in the funding process. You know, we've all seen the articles, top five things to do when you're looking for funding or like, 
you know, where to look, everything like that. But rather than focus on what you should do, I'd like to change the angle and focus on what you shouldn't do. And, you know, what are some common things that happen that developers need to look out for? So um, why don't we start off with Tiffany for this topic? For sure. So um, sorry to everyone who hears this on the podcast later and to everyone listening right now. Uh, I'm your honest friend, not your nice one. Um, so, so this is going to be a little bit rough. Uh, the f- number one thing I would say, uh, that I see is starting too late. Um, if you're starting your questions about funding, marketing, when to apply to this kind of stuff at the end of your dev cycle, you're way too late. Like you should be having these thoughts when you're being like, oh, is this going to be a first person shooter or a platformer? Like if you're like now, now obviously correct me to our other experts on the panel, please correct me if you, if this doesn't align with your viewpoint. But what I see a lot of times is developers get like 90% done and then they start looking for a funding partner for the last like bit. And I'm like, that's too late. Like a a funding partner's a marriage, especially if you're going to go for what I call a non-traditional funding thing as you know, not a, not, not a nineties publisher deal, like a, you know, a VC, or you're going to go through an accelerator or incubator, or you're going to take on private angel money or something. You need to be having these thoughts earlier but that's the biggest one I see. Obviously there's other ones like pretending money doesn't exist. Business isn't real. Not knowing what a marketing plan is. Um, I tweeted about this on a Katie golden on reply to a Katie golden tweet about GDC talks. It was a basically like, you need to think about your go to market plan when you're thinking about your core mechanic. And I know that's not fun, especially if you're used to being an individual contributor, but that's my biggest red flag. I see. Uh, I can expand upon some other ones as well, but that's my golden nugget there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I think that, you know, creating games is an art. And as artists, we often want to be like, I just want to focus on, you know, creating the story and everything. But mm-hmm. if you want to continue to do what you're going to do, you do need to think about business and marketing. And having that in mind at the early stages can really help you integrate that into your final product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I recommend a business co-founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People talk about needing a technical co-founder. I recommend a business one, someone who likes talking to lawyers and accountants and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, Joni, what about uh, what are some things that you see also? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially with VC funders. Like they really want to be part of that conversation and they really want to be part of building that that brand and that strategy. So I, I definitely agree with, with Tiffany on that. Um, also, trying to fit into someone else's space is a big thing that that we see uh, as a, a really high, not, um, a, I was going to say not success rate. Um, uh, there's kind of changing the game, changing the goal, changing the strategy, changing um, all of these things, especially when you're taking on one person's opinion as possible. And just, and, you know, one person's going to have an opinion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right opinion for your studio or for your game or for your concept or for your monetization. Um, it's great to get opinions from multiple people and multiple sources rather than um, just trying to fit into somebody else's space or somebody else's box or somebody else's concept. I think that's one of the biggest um, pitfalls that I see when when working with people who are looking for funding. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It's, it's, it's hard to look at what other people are doing, what's been successful for them and be like, oh, maybe that'll work for me. But it's always important to think about the context, think about what's right for you. Um, okay, Nathan, what about you? What, what, have you? what are some things that you see? Yeah, I think it's along the same lines in many ways. I agree with what, what's been said so far, but 
you know, another way that I think about this is uh, you see a lot of pitches where people are pitching to the players rather than the publishers or the investors. So they're trying to convince you like why I would play this game. And that's not unimportant. But as we've kind of heard already, the publishers and investors, they're looking at this as a business. And I know that can be also hard to hear. Um, and I often say to developers, like, if you've got a bad game, you'll definitely have a bad business. But just because you can have a good game and still have a bad business. And that's kind of the real tragedy. It's when you don't position it correctly and you're really focused on, on you know, trying to convince a player why this is great, as opposed to kind of thinking a little bit more strategically about where it fits in the market, um, you know, how you're going to price it, how you're going to go to market, you know, all of these things we've already heard, which I know are kind of things that developers don't typically want to focus on too much. Um, but they're, they're really the difference between getting an investment and, and failing to get that investment. And you've really got to think like a publisher or an investor and get yourself in that mind space or get someone that has that expertise um, to be able to build a pitch, to be able to kind of build a funding roadmap um, to give yourself the best opportunity for that. And yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest thing I see consistently is, is that kind of misaligned focus, you know. And again, the, just to reiterate on that, it's not that um, convincing players to play is not important. Um, it's not that the core gameplay is not important. Of course it is. But it's when you're in these conversations, you kind of need to put a different hat on and kind of appeal to what the investor or the publisher or whoever is looking to hand you a wad of money needs to hear to have the confidence to, to move that cash to you. Yeah. And I mean, looking at our applications for funding, like at Solar Funding, we get over 700 applications a year. And I've had applications where the game looks great, like the playability looks great, but the pitch deck made had no rhyme or reason. It didn't have any sort of the things that investors or publishers needed. And for that reason, we could not accept them to the program. So definitely look at that research, think about it. Um, and yeah. So is there anything else anybody would like to add? Tiffany. So speaking of target markets, uh, so I work with indies. Um, I'm going to do something that's probably infuriating to any investors watching this. I'm going to translate that down to brass tacks. Because uh, something I noticed uh, coming from a traditional business background is that words that we use in money land don't make as much um, sense or they're kind of, I've been told it's quite othering to some, especially smaller independent devs. And now for context, for those of you listening online, I usually work with people who are less than five heads in a basement. So, you know, sub five teams. When we talk about things like product market fit and like where you're positioning and who, you know, and monetization, all that, don't get scared by it. What uh, the takeaway I would say from this, like, you know, statement we've all just made, because mine dovetails with what Joni said and like builds on what Nathan said, which is like, you don't, we're not saying like um, mitigate the core of your situation. What I'm saying is when you're talking to a traditional VC person, they're used to seeing a guy Kawasaki style pitch deck. You can go Google that phrase, guys, Kawasaki pitch deck. It's a thing. But if you're talking to like a yield and nineties publisher, all of which have big names that we've heard of, whether it's first or second party, they're looking for more of what I call like an engineering forward uh, situation you get. That's where you get like, Oh, what's the vertical slice? What's the gameplay? Do you have a design doc? Like, when we say look at your target market, echoing Nathan, yes, luring in the player is important. But when you're talking to funding and investment and whether it's traditional, non-traditional, what have you, you've got to think about who you're talking to. Who's greenlighting your game? Now, if you're talking to the director of programming, like engineering style programming, not events programming, 
they're going to be much more interested in not just your core loop, but like, how are you building out stuff like expansion systems, whatever. If you're talking to say the head of microtransactions, maybe you should add a slide that has something to do with microtransactions. I'm not saying you need to like glue stuff you don't need into it, but sort of put your best foot forward, depending on who you are. My best actionable advice is stalk whoever you're meeting with, like go find their LinkedIn, go find their Twitter. We're all chronically online. Like I had someone pitch to me once for actual real life money publicly on a stage, a game concept that was literally just spreadsheets. It was like all they showed was spreadsheets. Now, if anyone's looked at any of my rants online, they know that I prefer single player narrative games and that I like big pictures and that I like to know how the money is going. Now, that doesn't mean I need microtransactions. That means I want someone to say, no, this is a $60 box. This is a $29.99 download. This person, it was, it was, an, it was a painful experience for all. And I gave the money to someone else mm -hmm. because I wasn't seeing alignment. So think about mm -hmm. the kind of people and sort of um, stakeholders you're pitching at. Uh, and that's what we mean when we say all of this. Like, it doesn't, it's not always a deck. Like to, to Lawrence's point of like the deck was a mess. It wasn't just that the deck was a mess, I'm guessing. It didn't showcase the best foot forward and it creates a situation where it's like, oh, is this a liability? I can't introduce them to like, you know, new type of money because they don't know how to talk to them or it'll sink the deal. Or I, no, I wasn't, I don't have visibility on what Lawrence was talking about, but. That's what I mean when I say, like, bring down a Brex tax. So someone correct right. me wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, we have an obligation to, you know, um, serve great games that are going to be really great opportunities to investors and publishers. And it, it goes both ways, right? Because we need to build that trust with investors and publishers as an organization as well. Um, so it's it's really unfortunate when we see games that are really great that, don't have good business potential or they look like they are going to be really hard to work with for um, those companies. Um, I do want to circle back a little bit um, talking about terms that might need a little explanation and um, ask about engineering forward. Uh, Tiffany, could you uh, give a definition for that real quick? Uh, so that's a term that I've used with a few other uh, indie business people. It basically is when <laughs> someone presents like a demo that's very demo-y, but no, nothing, nothing to back it up. They've clearly put a lot of work into like systems, combat, whatever. Um, no art assets, nothing, not even key art, not even a splash screen of concept art. Like it's really hard for me to understand the visual style of your game if you don't have anything on your slide that says the visual style is gonna be like, like I understand like a gray box wireframe is fun. Like, like yes, finding the fun is, one of the most important parts. But if you're going to someone who's non endemic to the games industry, you can't just show them like a janky Unity build and expect money to fall out of their pockets. In my experience, let's take a traditional VC type. VC types are used to the guy Kawasaki, you know, slide one, title, slide two, headshots, slide three, you know, like there's a formula 10 slides, live your best life. And then you give them a demo of something playable. If you don't have any art, or you don't think about things like, you don't have a slide that shows like potential addressable market or like TAM or anything like that. They're missing benchmarks that a non-endemic VC is used to seeing in their VC life. Like if I'm selling toothpaste or mm -hmm. caffeinated soda or whatever, when I made that pitch deck to Greylock or Sequoia or whatever, I, mm. they know what they're looking at. They see thousands of these a day. And so if I, as a gaming studio, 
I'm showing them stuff that we might find super important. Like, oh, we're going to have crafting for like, you know, 45 trees. It's going to be based on elemental, this, that, and the other thing. Like that doesn't, those keywords that are jargonistic to us don't work for non-traditional publishers. It doesn't work right. for non-endemics. Yeah. Nathan keeps nodding. I hope, I hope that's because I'm right. Not because I'm completely. <laughs> no, no, I 100% agree. 100% agree. And it goes the other way. Investors often say things like, well, when's your, when, how are you planning to like scale in three years? I'm like, a three-year roadmap for the game that we're talking about? I'm sorry, sir. This is a five-year roadmap. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean by more engineering forward one. It's like, it's something that might work if you're pitching to like the head of an engineering department or to a traditional publisher, like a first party publisher that like has a whole engineer games engineering team that can look at it as opposed absolutely. to someone who's got a guy who used to work at Facebook running their live ops. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, coming from a marketing background, it's, I can't stress this enough. You should always know your audience and tailor for your audience in anything you do, right? From your deck to your pitch to even your elevator pitch, your state, you're explaining your game to somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, think of the different groups of people that you might talk to about it and have different elevator pitches for that. It's well, really Lawrence, important. How on earth would I, as someone who went to, you know, USC's game school, lies, I didn't go there. I didn't go there. I'm making up a persona. No, what an elevator pitch is. That's not covered between how to make a platform or not suck and how to make a crafting system bomb. Like, well, shameless, shameless plug, it is in our funding ebook. Oh but my God! It's, <laughs> basically, it's it's you have to be able to explain what you're doing in the time that it takes to be in an elevator ride. Say you're running around at a trade show, you get into an elevator. Oh, head of publishing for Raw Fury. You go, oh my God! You have literally thirty seconds to one minute to tell them about what you're doing and get them interested Hold to the give you their card. Thirty whole seconds. I was talking sentences. Whole seconds. I don't know. Three sentences. Oh, sorry. Yes. Thank you for the correction. I no, no, no. I'm just saying I was taught differently. So please correct me. Teach me. <laughs> no, no. It's three sentences is great. It depends on how fast you speak. If you're like Hi, me I'm Tiffany Otto. Talk. I'm the director of partnership for Indicate. We're the Sundance <laughs> of video games. You can find us online at Indicate.com. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> you know, I read at the beginning, I think Joni also had a really great elevator pitch for Weeby, um, talking about just the key points that gets you the uh, business card to continue the conversation. That's it. Just a little taster. Absolutely. So at Wiggy, we actually teach you to say um, who you are, why you're here, and what you want. And those are the three sentences that you want to get out. So, hi, my name is, and I work wherever, and I'm at this thing because, and I want to talk to you. Here's my goal. So it's it's definitely that that very quick elevator ride to get get you to the top. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although now that I think about it, most conferences is like escalators. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I want to be trapped in an elevator these days. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, so I, I do want to take a pivot. Um, and while we're still on the topic of common mistakes and go into the psychological realm, um, basically, when it comes to business, right? Mindset, behavior, and attitude is everything. And that's something that us in the games industry who spend all day inside staring at a computer screen might not think about. So you know, if there's a, one thing or two things that you'd want a developer to bring to every interaction, what would it be? And um, let's go ahead and start with Joni on this one. Yes, yeah, so we, we talk a lot about um, 
like the unique selling proposition and kind of that mindset and, and how to get everybody on board. And we talk a lot about that being sort of what makes you different from your competitors or what makes you unique from like, what are you bringing to the table that's unique? But I always like to challenge people to instead of think about it, what makes you better, especially from a gaming industry standpoint is make it that competition and um, whatever else is on the market or whatever else you're seeing right now, wh why are you bringing something to the table that is, is, better and and why did you choose to make this game or or do this thing um so that's everything from gameplay characteristics to pricing structure and monetization to placement strategy um there's there's a lot of opportunities to kind of get people on board but make them believe it so so that you know when you're talking about your um your mindset it's it's not just your your game or the player's mindset it's also your team's mindset and your studio's mindset um making people feel like they're really part of the team and part of that conversation um and and kind of helping build out not just the product and and the game structure but really uh what it is that you are personifying and what it is that your your studio represents or your um what are you trying to get out there what positive message or or what what piece is it that you're really trying to, to bring to the table? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that confidence, you know, to be out there and compete with everyone is very important. Um, uh, uh, what about you, Nathan? Uh, in terms of the mindset that I'd like to see yes. from developers? Yeah. Yeah, mindset, attitude, behavior, anything yeah. in that realm. Yeah. So, you know, obviously confidence is good, but... You know, we do work in an industry where not everyone has, you know, natural confidence. Um, you know, you certainly don't need succession style people coming at you with that sort of overbearing Wall Street sort of we're going to send this to the moon um, confidence. Um, but what I do need to see when I see a pitch is like some level of passion. Like I kind of want to at some point see the developer when they're explaining what they're going through, uh, show a real interest in what they're doing. Um, and, you know, if they're kind of just working through this pitch tech in a very monotone way and when they're telling me about how cool the game is, they're not even excited about it, um, that's a kind of massive red flag for us and for me when I see these things. So, you know, just to kind of summarize that, I, I'm not too concerned about overconfidence or even a lack of confidence, but a lack of passion is something that um, really is a, is a red flag for, for when I see a pitch. Yeah. Energy. Energy is always important. Um, like people may not remember everything you say, but they'll remember the feeling they got during your pitch. You know, that often sticks with people for longer. Um, yeah, and, and passion, like when people are passionate about something, like even if I don't know anything about the topic, you know, even outside of gaming, but when you see someone get passionate and just kind of light up about what they're talking about, it's infectious. Like you can't help but be interested in what they're talking about because you can see this organic passion just kind of oozing out of them, you know? And so, yeah, that's, like I said, that's a big thing that I like to see. Awesome. Uh, Tiffany, what about you? Repeat the question one more time. I want to make sure I get all the nuance because I can't be trusted to remember anything. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, so in terms of business, right? Mindset, behavior, and attitude is everything. And since we're all always in front of a computer screen and not always interacting with people, what are some key things that you think developers should bring to every interaction they have? So my answer depends on how you're doing it. If you're in person, deodorant is my answer. I have, no, that's not a joke. Like, I wish that was a joke. I've spoken, <laughs> yes. to, I've spoken to a couple, um, 
very well-known first and second party publishers that have like not greenlit games for publishing because all they could remember from the pitch, this was, you know, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, was they were in those small little meeting rooms at like GDC and they couldn't focus on anything because all they could focus on was, you know, the other person's uh, situation. And I'm just like, I know we don't say it enough, so I'm going to say the uncomfortable bit out loud. Like deodorant is the thing that I think people should bring the most to in-person pitches. Uh, online pitches, I think high quality uh, production. I'm aware this isn't actually business, but for those of you uh, who aren't business lizards like myself, this is social engineering, which is far more important than actually what you're producing. I personally believe that you know, dovetailing with what Nathan said about confidence and passion. Um, I've seen a lot of bad things get greenlit because there's founder-focused investment as opposed to product-focused investment. And I don't understand why people aren't leveraging basic social engineering to, to give their game the best chance possible, which goes back to my whole like stalk someone before you pitch them. So what I want to see more of is research. I, I do not want to ever again walk into a meeting with someone and then try and explain to me why Rockstar Games is a thing and what Rockstar Games is a thing, because within 10 seconds, you can go on my LinkedIn and see I used to work there. And if you're doing that to me, I can't even imagine what nonsense you're getting up to in your publishing room. Um, know, knowing your stuff cold and not being defensive. Now, to be fair, I work predominantly with indies. I work predominantly with very early stage indies and first time indies. So my advice is a little different than, you know, what uh, Joni and Nathan are saying because they work with bigger, you know, bigger crews and like people who are a little further along. But I see a lot of like, I see a lot of cockiness as opposed to confidence and like threading that needle's hard. It's hard to be like, because you'll, no one will love your game as much as you do, but also like no one loves your game as much as you do. Like... I know that's the worst, isn't it? Uh, this yeah. goes back to social engineering. Like you've got to thread the needle. You've got to figure that out. And so I want to see what, what all developers, I want to see an element of check the ego at the door, know your product, stock ahead of time and wear deodorant. Like, mm -hmm. I know this sounds terrible, but like LinkedIn's free. Like yeah. you should, you should know I've gotten so like such a good ROI on just being the person who knows the thing. And like, good yeah, marketing absolutely. will sell a bad game. Yeah, bad marketing dude. will tank a good game. And marketing starts from the moment you meet someone. Marketing isn't like, how many Facebook ads are we gonna buy? Are we gonna go viral on Twitter? Which also you can't quantify that. That's not a marketing plan. Go go get Lawrence's ebook that's free from Exala and like learn what an actual go to market plan is. My tweet will go viral is not a marketing plan. Yeah. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out.
Um, yeah, no, exactly. preparation. And preparation extends in business. Preparation extends to personal presentation and all of that. Going back to the deodorant comment, I mean, I'm. It's only Tiffany you could bring this up for us. <laughs> and I it's true you. though. I love you for that. No, it's uh, it goes back to people remember how you made them feel, and if you made them feel uncomfortable, or if you made them feel like you didn't prepare at all, you know then they'll remember that. Um, now, before we close out this topic, I want to circle back and, you know, talk to Joni a little bit more about this because I know that, you know, your organization, Women in Games International, you specifically work with, um, you know, women, uh, female identifying and um, non-binary developers and uh, in a male-dominated industry, right? It can be intimidating. It can be difficult sometimes to work uh, with people comfortably. So. Are, are there any specific, um, I guess, specific tips for those uh, demographics that you would say? Yeah, we always say find your tribe and find your community. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things is, is everybody has a bad day, regardless of who they are, or how they identify. Um, so finding those people that will support you and that you can kind of speak to and, and, and bounce ideas off of is so powerful and so huge. Um, and, uh, you know, we have we have all of these programs and we really focus on everything from mentorship to, to how to pitch, but also um, how to, like you were saying, how to not do the thing um, to, to make sure that you're getting ahead. So um, I think the biggest thing is, is walking in there with confidence. You know, a lot of times we see people undervalue themselves, undervalue their game, um, undervalue the work that they're doing and, and maybe opt to not pay themselves to try to get the game out faster or um, finding ways to sort of cut corners when it comes to asking for funding. Um, but but really having that confidence and, and finding those mentors and asking those questions and, um, you know, show up for panels like this or, or, or get in front of somebody who is doing it the way you want to be doing it. Um, and uh, find those studios that you really want to kind of amplify and um, and sort of emulate and and talk to them and ask them questions and really learn. Um, when we talk about trying to be more comfortable, it's a, a lot of it is is having that um, that confidence to to show up as your full true self, which is really difficult when you have been constantly told to blend into the background or to be grateful that you even have a job or that you were only hired to be the diversity hire or you know whatever terrible thing that you kind of are bringing in your mind. You have to sort of step out of that shell and. Um, remember that it's not just you in a lot of cases. You are representing a lot of people and you are um, creating that um, that image for somebody who's looking up to you right now. And, and you might not even realize that, you know, somebody else is seeing you, but um, trying to show up as your best, most true, authentic self and um, and create that space for not only you, but for people after you is, is so powerful. Yeah, that's, you know, Amazing, amazing feed, uh, advice, and it's really great. Thanks for that, Joni. Um, okay, so I do want to move on to our next topic on that note, which is unique selling proposition. And I think that's a really great pivot since we're talking about being your true, best, unique, authentic self. Um, so let, let, let's just define it real quick for people who may not know what unique selling proposition is. Uh, Joni, what, what was the best way you would define it? 
Yeah, uh, and that was kind of what I was talking about earlier too, is like uh, a lot of times we define it as what makes you different or unique, but um, trying to also think about what makes you better and what, what makes you stand out and mm-hmm. in a positive way. Um, why did you choose to make this specific shooter game when there's so many other shooter games on the market? Um, what is it that your team can bring to this RPG that other teams maybe couldn't bring? That maybe they didn't have the same demographic or reach or storyline. Um, why did you make this this mobile game or why did you why did you choose to go down this route? And um, and really using that as your selling point and as the reason that somebody should invest in you um, and somebody should play your game or what what is it that you are uniquely bringing to the table um, and and how can you amplify that with the specific team that you've put together and the specific game that you've created and the specific story that you're trying to tell um, or or the specific shooter game person you're trying to shoot I don't know but like making sure that you have sort of that um, opportunity to really tell your story and, um, and, and be unique in that space. Right. Um, thank you, Nathan. How about you? To be honest, I don't think there's much I would add to that. I thought that, that pretty much nailed it. Um, you know, the only other thing I can think when I look at a USP is I'm trying to understand, um, where who's playing what game now and why would they move from that game to your game? So where's your audience? Um, where are they now and how are you going to get them? Not so much from a go to market space, but, what is it about your USP that's going to drag them away from where they are and kind of move them into, into your game? That's probably the only other thing I'd add. And I think probably journey actually covered that anyway, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, competitiveness, but that, that's a really great point. Just honing in on that. Um, okay. Tiffany. So I'm going to go at it from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, following on my statement about stalking people more. Um, a USP changes to a degree depending on who you're talking to. Uh, and this goes back to like personal brand. What is your brand? Uh, dovetailing with what Joni said about like, why does this first person shooter matter compared to the 500 other ones? Like, what are you doing that Call of Duty, like why would I pick you over COD? Cause COD has already got like a stranglehold on the marketplace there. Um, in business school, they said the unique selling proposition is what hole in the market do you fill? My question, my, my answer to that is a rebuttal. What market are you looking at? Uh, I like the example of the Kim Kardashian fashion game, which w- no one in the games industry likes to admit exists or that it sells banana pants or that they're making money hand over fist embarrassingly. Uh, I call it the general admission issue, which is there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't self-identify as gamers. We remember the stats that came out a few years ago about how like the, the, the best ROI is like divorced women over 53. Like, Hashtag Candy Crush, hashtag Farmville. But like, mm-hmm. so so my, my pushback on the USP question is, what's your market? Like, what's your market? What hole are you filling in it? And then part of that is also personal branding. So going back to Kim K, like, I've had like nine hairdressers over the last decade. All of them are obsessed with the little clones, the fashion game clones that came after the Kim K, like celebrity fashion game. They spend money daily in it. Somebody figured out the unique selling proposition. So when you're defining your new unique selling proposition, maybe define your marketplace, your total addressable market through a term that's not standard. Like a good example is um, furries are incredibly devoted consumers. If you create a product that the furry community likes, they will continuously buy. They'll buy anything in it. And I don't mean that in a mean, like derogatory way to furries. I mean that in like, if, you know, the Hayseed Night is a good example. Incredible. It's a visual novel, which, you know, 
a lot of people don't even in games don't understand that marketplace, but like people are obsessed with that game. Like the people who like it really like it. They buy every expansion. They, they do everything. Uh, an example that's not in video games is drag queens. Um, a drag queen traditionally, you know, dresses up as a girl and performs lip syncing contests at a bar or whatever. But these days, drag queens have talk shows and makeup palettes and perfumes and stuff, which are um, high margin items. Like it costs like nothing to make a set of cosmetics. And with the branding, you're getting a serious like 80% return. And even people yeah. who don't wear makeup are purchasing that makeup. So I would argue that is it better to have a deep consumer or a wide consumer? And these are, I feel like I'm not answering your question, but I'm trying really hard. There's a <laughs> well, you're, you're, we're, we're coming back to it. I think that, you know, it's, it's all about thinking unique selling proposition, right? Unique market, a unique exactly. market also plays into it. Um, are you filling a niche that other people aren't addressing? Are you talking to people, talking to gamers that don't get games made for them? Yeah. So like SteamWorld Heist is a good example. It's an XCOM platformer. Yeah, you heard me right. A vertical XCOM platformer. Yes, the game came out like 10 years ago. It's fine. But there was clearly a space for people who wanted to play XCOM but didn't want gritty XCOM. It's fun. It's steampunky. There's a bang and polka soundtrack. Like, it's something that got me to try an XCOM style game, which is totally not my wheelhouse. And I think they did pretty well on it, uh, especially on the long tail. So that's an example of a unique proposition. It wasn't just a unique fusion of mm -hmm. two different styles, platformer and XCOM, but yeah. the this is an example of like the art style was super important. It made it not intimidating. Like the right. difficulty curve is great. So their mm -hmm. value proposition might sound like garbage, which is, oh, platformer XCOM. But when you look at the whole package, it becomes like, oh, there's, there's a hole in the market that we can fill with that. Like what, what right. hole are you filling? Um, yeah, and also, I, yeah, there's a difference so no. between Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> You're fine. I, I just want to say that, you know, the I think the summary is that there's more than one way to be unique, right? There's more yes. than one way. There's accessibility is a really great way. I've seen games recently never made specifically for people who are colorblind or mm -hmm. like that. That is also a way to be unique. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do want to pivot on yes, to our next point, the next topic about unique selling proposition, and that is about like your team, right? Because it, it, in games, we're also in the art of storytelling and authenticity is everything. So what are some ways that you guys have seen a team's like makeup and a team, you know, their identity play into making their game and studio stand out? What are some really great ways that you guys have seen that? And I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll start with Joni for this one. Cool. Um, I think you can a lot of times tell when a, a team is um, happy and excited as they are building a game um, and when they are stressed and kind of feel against the wall. And so I think having the opportunity for the team to feel included, but also to feel um, supported is, is something that's really, really important. Um, and uh, I know having, you know, those conversations where everybody feels like they're involved or they're part of the um, the excitement, it's definitely, it's definitely very beneficial. It can also get kind of hazardous if you are trying to have every single person have an opinion about every single small change. And so uh, there's kind of that fine line between having your, your team be part of the discussion and and help with the discussion and um, also um, swaying too far into the, the getting into the 
the the um, the details of it. So um, I would say the the biggest thing from sort of our perspective uh, is is building that that team that feels like a community and building that um, that partnership um, and and kind of having the ownership of you know at Wiggy we have like the programs team we have the marketing team and within the marketing team we have the graphics and we have the production and having everybody kind of own their own role and bring their voice to that role, but also have the opportunity to to have opinions on other things that are happening or have input on other things that are happening and, and having those conversations. How can we strengthen programs using production and how can we make sure that um, the graphics are really amplifying what marketing is trying to say. And, and so there's a lot of a lot of pieces, even just, you know, within our organization. But when it comes to the game, how can you make sure that the music is really uh, in line with the graphics? Or how can you make sure that um, everybody's kind of talking to each other and having that opportunity to to bring their own unique talent to to the game and to have that opportunity to highlight their personal opportunity to um, to get in front of what it means and, and what that brand is and what that looks like. You are probably saying something amazing, but you're muted. My bad. <laughs> um, no, that's 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 great. That's a really great um, thought about, you know, kind of making sure there's someone on your team for everything. Um, Nathan, let's 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 hop over to you. So what are some of the best ways. I mean, what are what what are some great examples that you've seen where a team's makeup plays into making their gaming studio stand out? Yeah, the US the USP of the team is interesting, and it's yeah, it's um it can be a difficult one because obviously uh, if you've shipped a bunch of games at AAA studios and suddenly you're coming together for this new enterprise, then like the USP is effectively the team at that point based on their experience and based on where they've come from. Um, at the indie level, it's a different situation. You know, if you've never shipped a game, you don't kind of write, none of us have ever shipped a game. Like that's not a USP for that team at that point. Um, so when we're kind of looking at that, we've got to try and look in slightly different directions, you know, um, kind of how, what's the cohesion like with the team? Do the roles make sense with each other? Um, you know, how do they interact as Joni kind of mentioned? Um, you know, can they deliver on this game based on the people that are there? And that doesn't have to be an experience thing, but it has to be a role thing, you know? Like if they don't have a graphic artist and they're doing a, you know, heavy graphic art sort of game, then it's a bit of a concern. Um, the opposite of that is also true. If you've got people that come from non-traditional gaming backgrounds, but they're kind of being brought into that team, that's something that's always quite interesting as well for us. You know, obviously not on the dev side, but when it comes to the art or the storytelling. Um, at Gamescom, I met a guy from Italy who has been working in um, graphic novels for 30 years. And he's put together this puzzle game, which is like a theater. And it was just incredible, the artwork of it, uh, but he'd never built a game before, you know? So he didn't really know what the next step was. But the USP for this was absolutely how stunning this artwork was and how much thought he'd given to how this kind of puzzle game unfolded and moved around, you know? So you know, kind of bring that up to highlight, you know, you don't have to have that AAA experience for your team to be a USP. Um, you can find it in other places, you know, and it's about getting a little bit creative, I think, in how you put those teams together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, Tiffany, what are your thoughts on this? We should release a term sheet after this for things <laughs> like USP and uh, Team USP and uh, Business Lizard. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I 100% agree with everything that Nathan and Joni have said. Uh, 
I'm going to come at it from a different angle as per usual, which mm -hmm. is that, um, the, cause you guys have talked a lot about roles, uh, right. and it goes back to that whole fill the hole in the market thing. So it's like fill the hole in your team. You need to cover is a strong word that implies something's already gone wrong. So I hesitate to use it, but you've got to cover for each other's weaknesses and not strong points. Diversify. So exactly. So like from a roles perspective, let's say your CEO is an ex senior programmer or whatever, maybe they shouldn't be pitching if they're not very good at talking to people, but your art lead is good at talking to people. Maybe send your art lead to GDC. So that's what I mean by like covering each other's weaknesses. I'm also going to uh, attend to the uncomfortable elephant in the room, which is composition by demographic. Um, your team should have more different types of people. If your team looks like you from top to tails, you're doing it wrong because study after study after study shows the best product is created by a team that's diverse. That means people of different races, ethnicities, genders, um, disabilities, neuro uh, neurotypical versus um, neurodivergent, like the whole nine yards. Uh, now I will say you're, when you have a monoculture, things are easier. I mean, we mm -hmm. see this in large tech companies. Everyone's like, whoa, we're bros. We play ping pong and hit each other with Nerf guns all day. And it creates a toxic culture that diverse people, that underrepresented people can't get into. I will say those teams tend to work smoother because there's no friction, but we all mm -hmm. know a game with no friction is completely boring. So you know, you need these kind of uncomfortable questions and stuff. And you're also going to, you're going to create something more unique, going back to unique value prop and stuff of like, you know, if you have people on your team with diverse experiences, every game designer, senior, junior, whatever I've ever talked to that's worth their salt has said the best thing you can do for making, for being like better at making games is do literally anything else. They'll say like, go pick up tennis. That'll make you better at being a game dev. And so like, the cheat code for like not having to go learn how to play tennis is just meet other people who don't look like you and take their opinions in. I mean, that's how, that's how you're going to get some really cool stuff. Like just crossover cross pollination. Otherwise we're going to get another cloned boring mobile game. Like, so yeah. So just find people who don't look like you and collaborate with them. That's how you're going to get interesting storylines, interesting mechanics, and you're going to find those holes that haven't been done yet. I hope this answers the question because it's basically like hire people that yeah. don't look like you. Oh, and it it's from a founder yeah. level. It's from yeah. a founder level because like, so I'm a uh, white and female and from like the state slash Australia. Mm -hmm. So I have a very specific demographic I fall into. I need to find a co-founder that has as few of those similar traits as possible, or else I'm going to have an exponential increase on diff difficulty on getting more diversity as I go down. If my two heads look the same, then my right. five heads have a higher chance of looking the same. And then when I get to 10 yeah. heads, no one who looks different than, to me is going to want to mm -hmm. be there because it's going to appear toxic, even if it's not. And then right. you're just screwing yourself out of good talent. So yeah. that's how I look at it. Absolutely. And I mean, I do want to check, you know, with Joni on this as well, because I know her organization specializes in diversity in, you know, game teams of developers. So Joni, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, I was like, oh, man, this sounds like a workshop we have. That's so great. Um, <laughs> I love everything you just said. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's it's also working together, not despite your differences, but because of your differences and really honing in and pulling in those opinions and that 
that sh that learning using that as a shared learning opportunity and um and like you said absolutely um it's not even that it's uh, a toxic environment it's the opportunity to to get into a c-suite or a vp level it seems a lot less attainable if no one else in that in those level of roles look like you so um there's there's a huge opportunity and and it's everything from where you're posting your job descriptions to how you're wording it um, a lot of people from underserved communities don't see themselves as rock stars and so if your job description is to have have a rock star who's going to own whatever and and like I've always been told to sh you know to fall into the shadows because if you stand out it's probably because you're going to get ripped on you know so there's a, a lot of opportunities for everything to create inclusive wording inclusive wording to um to having those you know it's not just finding the key demographics that you hire at the bottom and then you, you don't understand why they quit um it's it's having them at all levels of the organization especially at the top and having that opportunity to kind of climb that ladder um, and bringing those perspectives to the table as you're developing not only your game, but your company culture and um, everything that your brand looks like and stands for. And, and there's so many opportunities to have such a, a better, more interesting and exciting uh, game and story. And yes, everything you just said, Tiffany, yes. Come and come and do a panel for us too, please. Yes, more collaboration. Um, okay, great. Uh, does anybody else have any more thoughts on this topic before we move on? All good? All good. All right. Well, let's bring it back into uh, the, you know, the tangible business side of things for our final topic, which is selecting the right type of funding for you. So you have, you know, avoided all the traps, the potholes, and you've, you know, created a really unique concept for your game. Now you got to find the right partner. So what what are some of your favorite funding sources to refer people to to work with and you know to generally just evangelize uh let's start with nathan on this one yeah i think in terms of recommendations for funding you've got to really i think think through what the studio or the group want because you know there's many different ways to get financing um you know it's more than ever now crowdfunding publishing equity and co-investment bootstrapping like you can you can find many different ways to skin the cat um but the big thing with finance a game or a studio is you've got to understand your ambitions as a group and really make sure that the financing that you're going after is aligned with that you know like if you're making a four-hour narrative driven point and click you shouldn't be out talking to a vc about a 25 million dollar pre-seed round you know if you're making a Web3 game, then you're in the VC space and you're having a different conversation. And so whenever I talk to developers about this, it's really about trying to understand what their goals are as a studio. Are you looking to make lots of small games, slowly build on that? Are you looking to build kind of IP around this entire thing? Um, once you answer these questions, and it kind of loops back to what Tiffany said at the beginning about starting as early as possible, once you can answer these questions, then you're in a place that you can go and look in the right spaces for the funding that's going to fit you best. Until you David, kind of have the, sorry. Okay, uh, sorry, let me just interject here real quick. Can you go into a quick, short uh, explanation about VCs, what they are, and why that type of game wouldn't be suitable for them? Yeah, sure. So venture capital is basically, uh, they're looking to finance kind of um, games or projects that are going to have very significant returns, typically 100x, 200x. Um, so what they want to do is they want to look for games or projects or businesses more generally, but games in particular that can become you know, a fortnight or just something that's massive. And what they'll do is they'll go around and they'll find 20 or 30 that have that potential. They know that most of them are going to fail, 
but they're hoping to hit one or two of them. So they've got this model that if you're coming to them and you're not saying that you can take over the world, they're really not interested in talking to you. Now, that doesn't mean you know a four-hour story-driven point-and-click can't be a very successful business and it can't be a very um, profitable business. It's just that the finance thing you need for that needs to be aligned differently. So you're more in the conversation of finding an indie publisher that specializes in this, uh, you know, knows where your audience is, knows how to market that game, and prepared to kind of help you through that journey um, to have a successful business. Whereas a VC is going to kind of look at you and say, look, this is just really not within our portfolio. And so this kind of comes back to what I was saying about you've got to find that alignment between your market, who you're targeting, what your game is, and the finance that can really assist you to get to that place. Awesome. Thanks, Nathan. Um, Tiffany, right. So what are some of your favorite funding sources to tell people to work with? Well, obviously, my favorite funding source is Excel's Funding Club. JK, uh, this is a sponsored talk. Um, not that Excel's Funding Club isn't amazing. And frankly, it would be one of my first stops, depending on what kind of game I'm looking at. I think it comes down to echoing what Nathan said. Once you've made that choice, then you can start hunting down. And this is where the sort of hubris thing comes in. I really want, especially indie devs listening in, especially solo devs, especially less than five heads in a basement devs, to think really hard about what they actually are. Uh, no offense to all the VCs listening. VC money is expensive money. No touchy. Like if you if you don't think you can, if you don't think you're ready to try for a 10x return in two years, don't. Like that's why that's why we have publishers. That's why we have other methods. Like the expectation in the non-endemic space is very different. So my favorites are based entirely on what your game is. I think companies like Fellow Traveler do amazing stuff with narrative games. Like everything they touch, like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with Citizen Sleeper. And like everything that Fail Better Games does is great. And they're both published by a Fellow Traveler. Um, I think you look at something like Strange Scaffolds, Oliver Nelson's company, and developer Damien, they make uh, you know, all these tiny games that are insane and literally just break your brain. That's their hobby. So like, uh, I believe that Strange Scaffold is, um, they are publishing, oh God, I've forgotten the name of the title, developer Damien, Damien's newest game about uh, adventurers with PTSD and how they cope. And it's like a RPG style game. So like, there's no way you present that to a VC, like literally copying what Nathan said. So my favorites depend on who you are. And frankly, if you don't know who you are, that's okay. Go talk to someone like Nathan or me or yeah. But uh, my actual favorite person to ask about this stuff is Alan Dang, because he has a list of every funding service basically in the universe that he gives out for free. And he's been in games for like a decade. So he'll say something like, Yo, bra, talk to these guys. So my answer is Alan Dang. Great. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, let's uh, wrap it up with Joni on this topic. Yeah, my my favorite is uh, group mentorship. I love getting feedback. One person can have an opinion, but it isn't everyone's opinion. And so getting feedback from multiple sources and then kind of interpreting it and using the pieces that make sense to you is is something that we always 
uh, encourage people to do, especially when you're looking for funding. So there's a lot of really great um, resources with regards to different groups based on either mobile game or PC game or console game or, or whatever you're kind of looking at for your for your funding for your game and then what type, you know, whatever type of game it is that you're actually creating. Um, so yeah, Exola's Funding Club, absolutely. I think that there's a huge opportunity for learning to make sure that you kind of have everything in your in your list ready to go and you feel confident when you walk in the door. Uh, Pocket Gamer Connect also has a really great competition for both uh, mobile games and PC games that you can get that group feedback and that mentorship again to, to kind of see where your game is, also to see other people's games and to really kind of compare uh, what you like about their game versus what you like better about your game. Um, but I would just say the number one thing is do not send cold emails to your favorite studios asking them for a budget because that's one thing that um, unless you're looking to sell your game, it's, it's not really the it's not my favorite tactic that I've seen people try to do. Um, so being open to that feedback and being open to that mentorship, I would say is a huge opportunity. And then if you are reaching out to a studio, reach out to a person to ask them for, for feedback or for um, an opportunity just to kind of learn from their experience rather than trying to pitch your game to, to sell it to them, I would say. Awesome. Amazing. Well, it looks like we have just about a couple of minutes left. I want to go ahead and move into our final thoughts. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start with Nathan. What are what's the what's the final words of wisdom that you would like to impart to our listeners and viewers? I mean, the Exola Funding Club is a free service, and we have a wide range of investors and publishers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think for me, the biggest thing is always. Um, don't be like, don't be daunted by this. I know it can feel like a lot when you're not in that space, but kind of everyone starts out not knowing anything about this and they push through it. And if you just kind of, you know, lean into it a little bit and rather than kind of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, I'm, you know, I'm in game development, um, just kind of facing it and slowly, slowly absorbing it, you know, ask people for help, you know, you can come to me, I'm happy to help answer questions. You'd be surprised how accessible people, you know, all through the industry are to really just help when you've got a question. The worst thing that can happen is someone's going to say no and you move on and try and get help from someone else. So don't be afraid, I guess, would be my, uh, my parting wisdom. Great. Tiffany, parting wisdom. Stalk the people you're pitching to so that you know how to pitch to them properly. That's my number one takeaway. Uh, building off what Nathan said, if you are not a dude, if you are not white, if you are not cishet, feel free to go into my DMs and I'll be honest with you about how to pitch to those people because studies show that at least women will only apply for things when they're 100, 120% overqualified, whereas uh, cishet white men tend to apply at 40% competence. So I'm aware that the statement of, oh, just reach out to people, the worst that can happen, they say no, is like very different when you look like me as opposed to when you look like my brother. So uh, this is an active invitation. If you are concerned and you wanna reach out to someone higher up than me or specialer than me, feel free to reach out to me first and I'll help you get ready. That's great. All right, Joni. I yeah, know. I think in the, the same regard, it's it's just be prepared. It's it's hard to recover if you show up the first time not prepared. So there are so many free resources, everything from Exola's Funding Club. We actually have a, a, a workshop coming up to learn how to build a game, build a pitch deck. We're working with Exola on how to build the pitch deck, build your pitch competition or your, um, your pitch presentation. 
uh, use Google ads to even get your, your game noticed and out there. Uh, and then we're doing a, a game jam also so that you can ask questions, you can get that feedback, you can get that mentorship. And then we're following that with a pitch competition. So you can actually get the funding for your game after all of that. Um, so there's there's so many resources. There are so many people that want you to succeed. Um, so I guess my, my biggest thing is be prepared and block out all the rest of the noise. Anybody who doesn't seem like they want you to succeed, you don't need to waste your time on them. So just focus on moving forward and, um, and use your resources. There's a lot of free resources out there. Yeah, great. Thank you, Joni. And I, you know, I would say anybody on this panel is always open to being reached out to. Do not be afraid to ask questions. I mean, when developers ask me what they could improve, I will go and find out for them from my team if I don't know the answer. So we're, we're always here for you. And um, we just, we wanna hear from you and we wanna see your games. We wanna see your games. Um, okay, well, that is our time. And I really wanna thank all of my guests for being here. Thank you, Joni. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Tiffany. It's been really great. It's been a really exciting hour for us. Um, we are gonna be taking questions on the Discord since we are a little bit over time. So feel free to ask them in the Discord channel. I will be there for a little while and I will pass any questions on to the experts if needed. Yeah, so everybody, once again, uh, thanks for doing this. It's always fantastic. And yes, the more explanation everybody can give, the better off it always is. The This is the end of the, of the first day. I'm going to go and uh, do some family time at the moment. But yes, go to our Discord, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Uh, we have an entire section there uh, for the conference today. They'll go to the post session chat channel, and I've already put a couple of questions in there. Um, and but the team will be around, and and they'll answer anything you've got. Uh, so without further ado, thank you everyone. Thank you to all of our wonderful sponsors. Tripwire presents Exola Vicarious PR. Uh, we really appreciate it. You let us do the things that we need to do to help all these developers. Uh, and I will see everyone tomorrow. Mm. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.